Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Iron Works Podcast. I'm Pastor Tyler. And I'm Zach. And we are very excited to be moving into a new season today. Uh, a lot of folks have been watching the podcast on YouTube and listening to them on wherever you listen to your, your podcast, SoundCloud or wherever. So uh, thank you and hello to all those of you that have been listening. It's very exciting for us to see. And as I said, we do have a new season today. And speaking of new season, Zach, I wanted to ask you your opinion on a very important issue that is uh, that has come across our nation at this time, and I don't think it's something we ought to be silent on. Oh, I, I love discussing important issues. Let's go. Okay, so uh, Major League Baseball I'm with you. Has, has made some changes <laughs> uh, to the, their rules lately, yes. and uh, they've been trying them out over spring training. And I want to know what are what are your thoughts on the pitch clock, Zach? Okay, so you watch more baseball than I do. I played more baseball than you did. Is that right? I don't know. Just, I, I don't know how much you played. Establishing our priors. I played for like seven years. I was young though. Like I didn't ever play in high school. But um, I played for one year in high school. So I think that most of the people that are like super excited about the game going faster. I tend to feel like, well, it's supposed to go slow. It's baseball. The folks that don't like baseball. But I'm not like anti. <laughs> I think you're anti-pitch clock. No, it's okay. So, so I'm not anti. I would be interested in seeing what it does. I, but I don't, you know. So here's the thing. They they made three rules, sure. three big rule changes. They made the bases a little bigger, which I really don't care about that. Fine. Why is that uh, even so important? That guys can get on on base easier they can be steals can be easier like a fraction though yeah so okay all right whatever fine Uh, they banned the shift which i am in favor of banning the shift i think meaning you're you're not allowed to move the outfield you can't move around no you can't move the shortstop over behind first and second base sure i know that there are folks that are diehards on that but i i'm okay with that rule change making Um, it be more offensive is kind of fun and and people were doing weird things with the shifts too like right now but here's but here's the thing the pitch clock has all kinds of little qualifications in it that uh, you know you you have to be ready if you're the batter with seven seconds to go. If your eyes are not on the pitcher, then you're uh, you're going to get a strike. There was a game that ended. It's spring training, so it doesn't count yet. But there's a game that ended because a guy wasn't ready in time, and it was a walk off well, violation, that's and that lame. was his third strike. Yeah. So and. Uh, now pitchers are using it to their advantage because Max Scherzer, who used to be my favorite pitcher of all time before the Nats traded him to the Mets, but um, you know he's now using every minute of his every second of his time and leveraging it. And you know you can only peel off a couple times per batter and stuff. So I just think I I don't think it needed to happen. I think there's you an easy just, fix here. You though, could have right? just told the umps every so often. You got to remind the pitcher to hurry it up. Well, there's an easy fix here, right? Is have a pitch clock for eight innings and have inning nine be no pitch clock. Yeah, which I don't know right that because do that, that adds. But I'm saying that's an easy fix because that now you've you're adding to the classic strategy in baseball, which is you bring in the closer and the last inning gets really kind of every pitch is super important. Like that keeps that unchanged you're never going to have a walk-off pitch clock violation which is the lamest thing i've ever heard but then you'll still have you know you keep the pace of the game be i don't know man i i think it's i don't know i, I saw whatever. a breakdown when they announced it where somebody said that uh it was something like only only a handful like i think it was like single digits pitchers who averaged more time than, than they the were giving in between pitches anyway like, so, right. So the so question like, is, why are we yeah. doing this? Is it just for a couple guys that we just need? To- they want to make it TV friendly. That's what they want to do. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's 
It's baseball. It's, it's funny because they, you know, last thing park. before we move on to you know lesser matters, <laughs> but uh, you know everybody wants to make. They're talking about well, we want to make Major League Baseball like the NBA, but the Major League Baseball far out earns and outperforms NBA every single year. Sure, it's not as exciting because you don't have guys like jumping from the three point line and dunking it in anybody's face. But it's you know you're you're if you like that sport and a lot of people do, then I don't know. They also now have ghost runners. We're not ghost runners. They have a in extra innings, they formalize this. So now you start with a runner on second because they want to wrap the games up faster. In extra which innings, I, you start with a runner on yes. second. I thought when you said ghost runners, I was like, wow, this is literally it's basically backyard is a baseball ghost runner. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't like that one very much. But well, anyway, this is a, it's a crisis uh, in our nation. Now that we've handled, we've gone from one important <laughs> doctrinal and Talmudic issue to another. <laughs> what are we talking hey, about today? This is what matters to me, all right? <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's, you know, guys, I know this is not... Uh, religious this is this is not normal but we're, we're wanting to uh maybe make it a little more lighthearted, a little more friendly and um before we get into some of these important things and so uh this is what's going on in our our world and our lives and uh, hopefully we'll be able to connect with some of y'all over the future and see what's going on there too but uh today we are we are as i said moving into a new season uh of this podcast where we've talked about a couple things already we've been through one on spiritual disciplines one on the bible and why we believe the bible mm-hmm. and uh today we're going to start one that is going to be covering the covenants namely the old and the new covenant and especially focused on the old one and answering questions like why do we not keep the law of moses questions like why don't we keep the feasts and the food laws why do we worship on sunday uh what about israel what has god done with the nation of israel the jews does they do they mean anything to the lord anymore how is this all going to end uh zach these are very important questions we these come up a lot i was about to say i'm glad that we've selected for this season a real nice uncomplicated uncontroversial set of topics it's not (laughs) it's not complicated but it is plenty controversial yeah um no i these are these are very very important issues and what i what i think is so incredible about and this is one of you know we'll we'll find out as we go down through the season these are kind of some of my most personal and kind of connected to my my past in in ministry and stuff um these all these issues questions about the old covenant about israel and you you did ministry and or worked for a ministry that did a lot of stuff in israel for a long time so i'm sure that was something you came up more. against quite a bit well yeah and what i love about all this stuff is that it's we're literally going to start talking about questions that have existed since you know the book of acts and yes. the book of galatians yes. like and what, what's funny is you'll you'll hear these questions that'll come up you know in your church today or on your youtube feed and then you'll go back to galatians and it's like almost verbatim these same questions so it you know it, the, these are the same issues that started to come up in the church for right from the beginning and they're no less important to us today you're going to still hear people ask you know like you said the big one that you usually hear is well you know i think that you should still keep this aspect of the mosaic law or 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 maybe you know there's less people that think that but maybe you've heard hey you shouldn't um what's an easy example that people bring up where they they refer back to part of the law specifically like you shouldn't get a tattoo you shouldn't um you know maybe people refer to something about clothing or hair you shouldn't do this or that because that's what the law says shellfish worshiping on saturday for sure all manner of things yeah worship on saturday this is and these things come up and and it's these things come up and a lot of times people who genuinely they they they're maybe 
younger in their faith and they really want to follow the Lord. And it's important. Of course you, you should. It's important. They ask these questions saying, wait, I'm not doing the wrong thing. Am I? And it's important for you to know as you're studying the word, what do we think about all this? How do we, you know, parse these things out and, and how do we walk in our correctly walk in our Liberty in the current, you know, covenant that we're under with the Lord. This is very important. Not, not secondary right. issues. Yeah, no, not secondary. I, I think, I would want to break this down. I'm just kind of coming off the top of my head here, but I would say that the issue of what do we do with the old covenant is like top three major themes of the New Testament. It's everywhere. What are we going to do bringing in all these Gentiles? That's fair. What are we going to do about the law? What do we do with the food? I mean, all of Hebrews, all of Galatians, a large section of Romans, a large section of Ephesians, the book of Acts, the whole first council of the church, Mm -hmm. right? It it comes up over and over again. And this is, uh, the answer is probably, if you're a believer, uh, you are probably already walking in the answer to this question, but folks can really... uh, you know, tweak you up and be like, Hey, you, you don't, you know, that the covenant was everlasting. And Jesus said, I'm not going to wipe one word away from the law. So how do you not keep the law? And that, that can be tough to answer. But as I said, it is not complicated mm. because the the new Testament gives us the answer in very plain terms of we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace or Christ has declared all foods clean. One man esteems every day alike. Another esteems, you know, one above another. Be firmly convinced in your own mind. You know, a hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Plain statements. How you then understand the flow of scripture from start to finish, knowing what your conclusion is, that's the the work of theology, and there are a couple ways of going about this, and um, most of them are are aberrant. Uh, I've I've run into a lot of um, <laughs> mm. heretics that yeah. get into uh, the these matters of the law and the the new covenant, and for whatever reason, end up reverting back to the old law. They Judaize themselves, and they're yes. all over the internet. And we've got to watch out for this. I know how to answer these things. And this is going to be a joyful conversation because it all ends, as you said, Zach, with liberty in Christ Jesus. Right. And so I'm, I'm very excited to get into this. And today what we're going to do, I mentioned, you know, going back to the beginning of salvation history, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to give a broad overview of Genesis through Revelation of what is God up to? What has God done in the world? A lot of time in Genesis, a lot of time in Exodus, and then the New Testament as well. And we're going to give a, a framework that will help us understand these things, as well as uh, set up a conversation. We're going to kind of say where we are, and then in the next time, we'll focus a little more on the specific pieces of this big picture. So hope that sounds good to all you. Uh, we're going to start with the beginning of the Bible. And in the beginning of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. So we're going to start with a nice little softball question, which is why did God create the world? (laughs) Why is there something rather than nothing? Why did God create? Because Zach, the Lord has existed in eternity past without creation. God is not dependent on creation for his own existence. It's the other way around. Yeah. And, and so there's, it's not like he needed, you know, worship or needed companionship or any, you know, he didn't create something like, or, or even that he had, a, you know, he wasn't expressing himself, right? Like maybe you create something because oh, I'm an artist and I want to, God, God was self-expressing to within the Trinity, you know, from eternity past. So he had no need to, of some sort of audience or something like that, but 
he chose to do that out of out of love. He's saying, you know, I, I want to create people that I can love and that they can love me. Now, and that's why the that's why creation is so important is because it again it comes from a Trinitarian place, right? Like it's not again yeah. it's, it's, so we're and and that's why we're talking about the big story here. That's why the salvation plan is so incredible because it's about including us in the relationship that God has within the Trinity. Right. And we, Trinity is essential for understanding many of the things we know about God, because mm-hmm. um, if God is not triune and God is a monad, as the theological term, meaning God is is only one, only he's one. a monolith, like the, the way the Muslims understand God to be, or even the Jews understand God to be, although I think their own scriptures uh, show them that there's more to it, right. that God is, is echad, he is one, but he is one composed of of more than one, which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, you cannot speak of need when you speak of God creating the world. Correct. God is is not, first of all, the world is not God. That's pantheism. Right. You know, that, and there's even like a scientific pantheism that guys will come at. Um, I, I don't want to get too far off track at the very beginning, but they're like, <laughs> everything is one and we're all stardust and it's all connected. Nor is it that God is in everything. That's called panentheism. Right. That God, you know, you you pick up a tree and God is in that Yoda tree. Theology. Yeah, yeah, Yoda, <laughs> right? Uh, that Yeah, Yoda is not a Christian in case anybody didn't know that. But uh, God... The universe is separate from God. Before that, there was only God. God was not floating around in space. There was no space for him to float in. God is. That's his name. And if God is not triune, then you cannot say things like God is love because God could exist on his own without loving anybody. And love is no longer a necessary attribute of God. That's something Mm -hmm. that he acquired later. But because we believe that God is three and one, that God as three has always existed in a relationship of love, that God did not need anybody. But we're going to look at three reasons why God did create the world. And remembering, as Zach clarified at the beginning, that there is no sense of need when it comes to the Lord. I think that there are three biblical reasons we can see of why God made a world instead of just leaving there nothing, uh, instead of just being on his own. And I think the image of God within us testifies to each of these reasons. I think that people can focus on one reason to the exclusion of the others. But let's, let's start with this. I think the first reason that God created is because... God is simply creative, that God wanted there to be something rather than nothing. And you say, well, why? Well, you probably understand this impulse. If you are artistic or if you, you don't need to be like, you know, a painter or a sculptor. If you are looking in your backyard and it's a big mess and there's trees and there's brush and you say, you know, if we cleared this out and we uh, put a little fountain right here and I could build a little, you know, bench over on this spot, that's, that's that creative impulse to, for there to be something rather than nothing. God did not need to create, but God wanted there to be a world filled with people. And I think uh, C.S. Lewis does a good job of explaining why that's the best of all possible worlds for there to be something rather than nothing. And the reason we can know that is because God chose to do it and God always does what is right. But I think we can we can resonate with that, Zach, can't we? That we want to make things. We want there to be something and God put that in each one of us as an expression of his own character and glory. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, I think there's a pretty good, you, you can't always reason backwards like this, but if you're being careful and biblical, seeing that, you know, there's a lot of things about that, what, what we do in art or in creation that they're, they're there because that's who God is, right? He he loves to 
order things, make something beautiful, make something right. So yeah, I think yeah, the scripture says for for his own good pleasure these things right. were made. And he you wanted see that to. In, you it see that in the, the how it's recorded too, where God you know says I made this and then I said it was good. I looked at it and I said it was good. Then I made something else and I looked at it and I said it was good. Right, like that he's he's declaring those things good and he's. I don't know, maybe satisfied isn't the right theological term because it's not as if he I was think unsatisfied so. before. Oh, I don't think you need to be that that. But you know what I mean? Like, about it. Yeah, right, I think but the he's Lord is satisfied like, yes. with what he made. And he's declaring, yeah, it's it's good. I'm I am happy with it. And I think that's there's something pretty cool about that too, because I think it also involves sometimes people can get really picky and say, like, well, the only reason that God does any of that is for his glory. And it's like, well, okay. But I think God also We will get to that. Right. I think but God I don't also think the only thing. takes pleasure in his creation. That's pretty clear from from Genesis especially. So yeah. you know and, and whether that's the pleasure of the fact that it exists or the fact that it's existing and taking pleasure in him, I think those can be both together. But he's you know, he, yeah. he that that seems to be important enough to God that he chose to make something rather than nothing. Yes. And I for example myself, I love to write. I love right. to write songs, I love to write poetry, I like to write books. And um, there's just something in me that says, I want this to be, <laughs> right. I want this to come about. And there's no, I, you know, if I don't, it's not like I'm going to be a, you know, be lesser than, but that's a drive that's within me. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that's an expression of God's character. J.R.R. Tolkien talked about sub-creation right. as an expression of God's character. I think he was right on in that. That God created, first of all, because he wanted there to be something rather than nothing. He wanted there to be a world. Here's my second reason that I've, I've drawn from the scriptures here. We compare God to an artist in the first one. And the second one, we can compare God to a father, and God is our father, that God wanted a world filled with his people. God wanted there to be people to whom he could show his love. Now, you can scoff at that and say, well, God doesn't need people. Why would God create? A mother and a father know that drive to want to have a little you that you can love. That's the drive of a mother and a father, and that is an expression of the attitude that God has. And it's not need-based. No, again, we already already clarified that. It's that this is because God, like, you you know, I I don't need to have children, but no, but I I wanted to. Right. There's that drive to have have your people, to have your your group, your people that you can love and that you can teach and that you can raise up. And I think that this is similar to, and, and in fact, a reflection of God's attitude that, you know, God was eternally satisfied within himself, just as a, a father can be satisfied on his own before he's a father or with the mother, but there there comes from that a desire to, to spread the love, you might say. Yeah, and, and I think, again, sometimes in theology, things we, we, we carve the point too fine or we get a little bit too, you, you know, like, look, it, it God has described himself as a father. That doesn't mean, you know. He's so, defined himself right, as a father. Right, so, so that means that we can, you know, he has made us in his image. And so apparently making things in his image is something that he is immensely pleased by right now. Now he, yes. we're not identical to him, but he chose to say, you know what? I would prefer that a world exists and that that world be peopled by creatures that image me that are like, that me. are like me in some way. And, and that can in a lesser way, imitate me and do the things that I do. Again, if you're a dad, this is not shocking to you. Your, no. your best moments are when you see your son, like usually if you're watching around a corner, you could see him clearly doing something because he's seen you do it. Yeah. And that makes you incredibly happy. Oh, if, unless it's a bad thing and then you're upset, but you know, but it, even it, in that, right. Kind of like, fun, Oh, yeah. it's my boy. Right. right? And, and so God <laughs> wants, God desires that from us that he he is wanting us to freely love him by attempting to imitate him yes and this is not uh 
This is not anthropomorphizing God. This is not us looking back no, and describing God this. as a man. Right. These attributes of us, the desire to look upon a blank canvas and say, I want to paint something beautiful, or waking up one day and say, we need some kids around here. <laughs> right. Right? Those are theomorphisms. We are like God in those things. Mm-hmm. We're not making God like us. Right. God wanted to have a world, number one. Number two, filled with his people. And number three, here's the one that everybody understands pretty well. Uh, the third reason why God created, we're going to compare God now to a king or to a warrior. And we're going to say that God created the world as a place to manifest his own glory. That God wanted to do something to glorify himself. And we understand this one too. Mm. If you've, you know, I'll give you an example. Whenever I watch the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance, that gets <laughs> yeah. me driven to want to go out and accomplish something, mm-hmm. to conquer something, to win something, so that I can have earned accolade and earned praise, not in some kind of selfish ambition, but to do something that is, is worthwhile. When a king rides out to battle in all of his splendor and conquers another nation and stands up and people shout his name and crown him and fall at his feet, that's that drive to uh, achieve, not in a, in a theological sense, just in a human sense, to be glorified, to be honored, to accomplish something great, to win, you might say. Right. And God, as the ultimate king, right, as the ultimate warrior, we get that from him because we're like him. This doesn't make God selfish. This makes God glorious, who's deserving of these things. And uh, while while perfectly satisfied in himself before creation, had this this desire to express who he is and to have those that would exalt him and glorify him because he's worthy of it. Well, he's created, God is in that sense, so he's creating a domain, right? Which, again, not, so because he is choosing yeah, As in to, like a kingdom. Yes, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's creating a, a, a place in which to rule. I think I, I recently read uh, Dr. Mike Heiser's book, Unseen Realm. He's, he's with the Lord now. Um, and, uh, he really? yeah, he, he passed away recently of, uh, of cancer. I did not know that. Yeah. That's like, that's recent as of like this month. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, he's the Lord. He's in glory. Now. Yeah. He's a, he's a, was a wonderful man. And, and his book unseen realm talks about how God, how it's important to understand, especially in the old Testament, but I would argue also in the new Testament, God's, there's this theme of God creating the world as a place for himself to have supremacy, to demonstrate to all the other um, what what Dr. Heiser called the divine beings, right? The the angels, all these other creatures. He's demonstrating, I am king here, and uh, everyone here is going to serve me, including these other divine beings or the divine council, like you see in in Psalms. And so, in in a sense, God is building this this I don't know what to call it, a sandbox or a kingdom, and is saying, okay, now I'm going to demonstrate. I don't need to do this right now. If we did that, it would be because we, we need, you know, we have a chip on our shoulder and we, we need to show people that we're something. God is saying, I am so supreme that I'm going to create all these other divine beings. I'm going to create all these people, these men, these women, and I'm going to build this world where they can all demonstrate that I'm supreme. Yeah. And I will say too, uh, you know, we, we mentioned that it can be like selfish when we do this. Not all the time. Hmm, when you're true. wanting to step up and, and do well and be honored by people, okay, that can be a hypocritical thing, but not always. Mm. Uh, that's that's not, you know, 
and a, an Olympian goes to the Olympics because he wants to get the gold medal to be standing on the pedestal in front of the whole world while his national anthem plays, and he'll have that for the rest of his life. He wants the glory, little g, let's say, the glory that sure. comes with that victory. Or when a, a general goes out to battle and he's like, I'm going to win this battle and achieve glory for myself and honor for my nation. Like That's not a very modern thing, but it's a good thing and it's a real thing. And by the way, both of those examples in different places have been inscripturated for us as things we should like things we should do in pursuing the Lord. So they're yes. good enough, you know, that Paul uses them and says, no, you should do that. You should, you know, seek accolade, all that. So it's, and we get that from the Lord. Yeah. yeah. Do well to pursue something and, and be great at it. That comes from the Lord. Right. Now, this idea, I believe, can be taken by some to be, well, really all of these, but especially the third one, can be taken to be the only thing, the only reason God does sure, anything. Sure, 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 um, sure. And I, I yeah. don't think that that's right. Mm. And the reason I don't think that's, that's, you know, it's not wrong, it's just not completely right. Is it, well, the only, for example, God only does anything for his own glory. Well, the Bible tells us, for example, John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, he saved us for his glory. Yes, he did, but he also did it out of love. Mm -hmm. And he also does things because they please him and not just to glorify himself. And I, th I think that can lead to a rather mean picture of God you know, unfortunately, well, not where only a mean he's, he's just there to dominate. And he is there to dominate. Make no mistake. But that's not all of it. No. Neither is, well, God does. The only reason God does anything is out of love. That's not the only reason. Right. Well, it's, it's, I don't think it's a, it's not even just necessarily a mean picture of God. It's incomplete. If you took only any one of God's attributes and said, this is the only one that matters to God, you would create this two-dimensional caricature that isn't who God's revealed himself to be. So that, that's why I think it's important. If you feel like we're harping on this. You got to set these foundations carefully because down the line, as you start talking about things like, well, what is God doing in the salvation history or what is God doing with his chosen people? If you make some bad assumptions at the beginning about who God is and how, why did he choose to start this process in the first place? They, they tend to show up later on down the line. So this does end up becoming uh, pretty important. Okay. So we've gotten as far as Genesis 1-1. Yes. Yeah. Well, I wanted to lay <laughs> that what? out because this is going, this is... The reason, I think these are biblical reasons. God, right. number one, wanted a world. Number two, full of his people. Number three, to the praise of his own glory. God as artist, God as father, and God as king. I think those are all eminently defensible biblically. Yeah. But when you get to Genesis, you see that the plan goes awry very quickly. Yes. And that is because of sin, that Adam and Eve in the garden departed from the created order of God. They decided they wanted to be like gods themselves. And you see uh, the, the order that God had created completely flipped up on its head. Instead of the man being the head of the woman and the two of them over, you know, overruling the animal kingdom, you see the man listening to his wife who's listening to an animal, who is, of course, the devil himself. They rebelled against the Lord. So... Things change and change really for a very terrible thing. But here's what happens, Zach. God did not immediately torch the world and start over. And I think the best explanation of why this is that I've read comes from Paradise Lost, actually. John Milton. It's a poem. It's not scripture, obviously. But I don't have the quote in front of me, and I still might not read it in any case. But uh, there's a when God and the Son... The father and the son in the story foresee what's going to happen, that Adam is going to rebel and that Satan is going to get the best of, of Adam and Eve. Uh, the conversation comes to the point where they say, we are not going to let what we have done be thwarted 
by our enemy, the devil. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep going with the plan and do whatever is necessary to correct this and arrive at the same goals God always had, right? To have a world full of his people for his own glory. Even though now all of that has gone terribly wrong, God determined to save the world. And this opens up what we call salvation history. Yeah, and this is, I mean, and, you know, we've talked about the different kinds of theology before, biblical and systematic, and right now a lot of people are, are kind of rediscovering, maybe for lack of a better term, biblical theology. This is kind of the big, th if you had to pick one theme, right, for the Bible, which might be too complicated a, a task, but if you had to pick one theme, I wouldn't argue with you if you said, well, the theme of the Bible is the sal God's salvation history of what he's done in the world. Right. Like th this yes. is from from beginning from creation the and progress and, of God's plan. Exactly. So so um, that's not a, a bad way to sum that up is God is revealing over time. This these are the steps that I'm taking to save the, the world and the people in it. Now, I think this is why it's so important to understand God's sovereignty correctly in Scripture is because, look, God could, could God have said, you know what? Yes, I gave you this choice, but I'm going to override that. And or could God have said, no, you chose wrong. So I'm going to start. I'm going to hit delete and start the world over until you choose right. Yeah, he could have done that. But he chose to simultaneously allow for and respect the agency of his creations and to sovereignly get the result that he has chosen. Yes. Right. Yeah. So he, he's to doing go through it. He's doing <laughs> both things, right? Where he's saying, oh, no, I'm going to allow you to make these sinful choices. I'm going to allow Satan to do his best to spoil my creation. And yet, you know, you, you can thumb all the way through the pages to Revelation. I'm going to get here. Yeah. We're going to get here in the story. And the, basically everything in between those is God saying, and this is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. And that's Genesis 3.15 is what's called the Proto-Evangelium, right, which right. is Latin for the first gospel, where the Lord uh, prophesied to the serpent and he said, the seed of woman will crush your head one day. And that's the Lord saying, this isn't over. And I think if you look back to those three uh, descriptions of God that we gave earlier, I think, why does God continue? Well, number one, as an artist, God seems to have a thing for stories. Yeah. And God yes. seems to have a yeah, flair yeah. for the dramatic. That's like in heaven, we're going to be remembering how the Lord, as dark as things got, the Lord still brought it back. Right. Uh, I think as a father, or sorry, as a, yeah, as a father, the Lord loves his kids. Right. He doesn't want to see them lost forever. And as a, as a king, as a warrior, right? You might even say like as an athlete, the Lord is like, I'm not going to let you beat me. Right. I'm not going to let you right, have right. the last laugh, Satan, before I cast you into oblivion, that I wrecked your creation and you're not sovereign. He's like, I will, I'll play this game and win and then throw you into the lake of fire right. well, and there's forever something, and ever. That's you know, our God. It's we, a, He didn't give up on us. It's we talk awesome. about the problem of evil, but like there's something to that. That's always been, you don't want to talk about God's overarching plan. That's always been Satan's underarching plan is he's he's mining yeah. yeah he's always saying okay that's fine you can make things and i'm gonna do my best to ruin them he seems to have this horrible awful just jealousy against god's creation and and wanting to just wreck it and destroy it so okay god god recognizes that and in his sovereignty has chosen to say yes and i am going to you know you know i'm going to make all things new right yeah and so i i think you know again when you come into understanding God's chosen people and, and God's, you know, the history of what God's doing in salvation from this lens, some of the things that might have confused you, especially the Old Testament, are going to make a, a, a lot more sense. Actually, in the New Testament, too, they're going to make more sense because you're going to see, like you said, OK, yes, God could have rejected Israel. But he chose not to. Why? Well, because they're his kids. And you see that exact example. I'm just mm -hmm. reading through the book of Jeremiah. And he has a place where he says, 
what am I going to get rid of them? He's like, they're yeah. my children. Isaiah I have desired the same them. Thing. He's like, I, yeah. I picked you up by the hands and taught you how to walk. Am right. I supposed to wipe you out now? Right. And so, so it, I'll, I'll go through the pain of exile and bring you back because I love you that right. much. Hosea, where he's like, look, no, I, like, you can do whatever you want. I'm going to come after you, right? Yeah. And, and these are, you know, some people will accuse, I mean, you can hear the objections now, accuse us, again, of anthropomorphizing. Okay. But these are the ways that God has revealed his heart, his will, his emotions to us in scripture. We're yeah. only we're only saying what he has already said. So it's not anthropomorphizing to ascribe these emotions to God. This is who God has described himself to be. And we we ought not ought to. We have a duty to learn from that and say and, and instruct ourselves from that instead of saying, no, 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 I think God is, you know, you can end up remaking God in some weird stoic um, you know, mystical image that isn't who God is. He, he's not an equation or a force. He's he's a he's a person. Yeah, yeah, Yoda. You know? Yeah, yeah. We're really getting on Yoda's back in this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> come on. Eph- Yoda. <laughs> Ephesians chapter one, verses nine and ten, talking about the plan of salvation, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things mm-hmm. in heaven and things on earth. So I mean, to break that down real fast, that we we as Christians now understand the mystery of his will, meaning we finally see what God was up to. According to his purpose, God always had a purpose. We kind of talked about that, which he set forth in Christ. Jesus was the key to the whole thing as a plan, not improvisation. It was a plan. Right. It's kind of like when you know a boxer shows up and says, here's what I'm going to do to you in this round, and the next right. round I'm coming at you here. And For the fullness of time, right? We had to wait for it to come about, to unite all things in him, in heaven and on earth, that God's plan was to bring everything back to where it was supposed to be. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, and here we're going to get into some of the theology of how properly to understand this, this plan of history, that both of these things generally arrive at the same place, but... Uh, let's let's get into this. As God has worked out his plan, he has done so in stages, mm-hmm. both in response to man's wickedness. There are times man has done something that has uh, prompted God to act and things God has done proactively to accomplish his will. For example, God flooded the earth as a reaction to man's wickedness, right. especially with the, the Nephilim and the, the sons of... Uh, the sons of the devil, the demons. And uh, then proactively, God chose Abraham. It's like, all right, here's my guy. We're going to go from here. And we call this progressive revelation. We talked about the mystery of his will for the fullness of time. God did not reveal the fullness of his truth in the book of Genesis. He did it progressively throughout history. And that word progressive has nothing to do with the political movement. It's just a descriptive term. Progressively (laughs) throughout history, culminating in the gospel. Mm Mm-hmm. And part of that progressive revelation has been a series of covenants that God has made with people. A covenant is like a solemn oath. It's a binding agreement. It's a vow. It's a clasp hands and, and swear to one another. God has made a series of covenants either with a certain individual or with certain groups or with all of creation. And each of these very significant covenants has inaugurated a new stage in the unified plan of God. It's God's one plan, but there have been stages in the plan. And the purpose of the plan was to have a world filled with God's people for his glory. And that's what we call salvation history. So let me me just point out a couple things or ask a couple questions. So number one, it's not multiple plans. 
This no, is where God you, didn't change his mind. It's, right? it's all been one. This one is where plan. people. Well, this is where people can get in trouble, right? Where they say, "Oh yeah, well back then you got you know," and maybe I've even you know mistakenly said this sometimes, not thinking like, "Well, yes, back then people came to God through the sacrificial system, but now we come to God." No, <laughs> God's plan has always been, "You will come to me through faith." God has revealed several different stages of how that plan is going to work. And there've been different covenants, but there hasn't been multiple plans, right? So it's only one plan. Yes. There's different, but salvation is now and only ever has been and only ever will be by through, by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, rather looking forward through the eyes of faith, through the limited amount of revelation that was given or looking backwards in the fullness of the testimony of the gospel. Right now. But it's also important to remember there have been different stages yes, and different covenants. Sometimes you can go too broad and say, no, no, there's an, and you can erase some very important differences. <laughs> and that's where a lot of times when we remember we were talking about how to read scripture and context and things, these become very important when you're trying to interpret. Uh, like we've talked about with the, in the book, Grasping God's Word, it talks about the, the, how big is, you know, how wide is the river you're crossing. And that's, that's really important when you're interpreting scripture. Hey, what, you know, what covenant was this person under and does that change how I interpret this thing that's happening? Right. So you you don't want to either make those stages or anything be too few or just overlook them or try and turn them into these huge differences, like as if there's different plans of salvation or something. And lucky for us, uh, good godly men have gone ahead and, and, given terms and explanations right. to a lot of these things. So in Ephesians 1.10, which I just read a minute ago, it said the plan for the fullness of time. The word for plan is the Greek word oikonomia. This is where we get the English word economy, and it comes from two Greek words, oikos, which if you ever bought the yogurt before, you've seen oikos, <laughs> it means house, and namas, which is like the word deuteronomy, which means second law. So namas means law. So oikos, namas, oikonomia. House law, the administration of one's house. If somebody uh, was handling the oikonomia, they were usually the manager. They were the head of the household. And this is translated in older translations, dispensation. And that is the word that we're going to focus on to describe these stages. Now, Zachary, we are members of Calvary Chapel. Yes. Calvary Chapel has an allergy to theological systems and how rigid they can be. Is that true? It's fair. Yes. <laughs> I think that's now, fair. <laughs> we've talked about this before, but can you just explain why we tend to not like theological systems as as formally set out? I think I already was talking about, you know, the, the sovereignty and man's choice in, in God's salvation plan. My allergy or the allergy we tend to have sometimes is we look at those and we say, well, wait a second. These are, these are both talking about something important and good, but then they're emphasizing it so much that it removes the other important good thing. So, for example, the reason why I'm not systematically aligned with either, you know, hardcore only Calvinism or hardcore only Arminianism is because I think those both systematize the other one out of the picture. And that's bad because you're losing something that's clearly in Scripture. So that's why we are concerned. We look at the systems and we say, wait, is this so rigid that it's cutting something to fit? In yes. scripture, that's that's tends to be our concern. Right. So the reason, I mean, we teach verse by verse through the Bible. And when you do that and you get a sense for the Bible's own proportions and its own emphases, you come to realize that it's very difficult to sometimes arrive at a neat system that does not miss something somewhere. Sure. Now, the reason I say that is because uh, there are there's nothing 
inherently wrong with systems as long as they are subject to the word and not the other way around. Right. And to just get right to the point, a plain reading of scripture, such as Calvary Chapel follows, places us within the broad umbrella of what is called dispensationalism. I've even heard Calvary Chapel pastors, for some reason, uh, disparage the idea of being a dispensationalist. But we totally are. <laughs> if you believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the saints, you are a dispensationalist. Why do you think I, it is? If you believe that the Jews still have a place in God's plan for the end times, you are in all likelihood a dispensationalist. <laughs> right, yeah. That doesn't mean that you agree with everything that such people would say, but that is the umbrella we fall under with all the appropriate qualifiers, and we will critique the system in a little bit too, but this is where we land when it comes to matters of salvation history and the covenants. Yeah, I was going to say, why do you think it is that, but I think you answered the question, is the, the reason why I think sometimes from within our our background, what, why guys in Calvary tend to push back against being dispensationalist is because it gets tossed around like a cuss word by people who are only talking about, you know, the, I'll just go ahead and say the dumbest versions of that, like the most ridiculous over the top straw man versions. But look, well, well, I think before, I'll let you finish yeah. in just a minute, Taylor. But <laughs> uh, so I think a lot of the best theology and Bible study books are written by Reformed scholars. Uh, yes. And I think if you are unfamiliar with what dispensationalism is, you read a bunch of guys that toss that word aside like a bad word. Right. And also, Calvary Chapel is a charismatic church, and many in the holiness movement and the charismatic tradition uh, despise dispensationalism also. Right. So a lot of our teammates in other areas dislike this, but um, we need to not be, be afraid of this word. <laughs> well, and, and I'll just say, too, broadly, look, like we just finished saying why sometimes we're allergic to systems. It's okay to understand, hey, you know, like you said, broadly speaking, there are two ways of dividing an understanding of the salvation plan of history. We're probably not going to come up with a brand new one, right? Mm -hmm. And and saying, oh, I, that's too systematized. I just kind of don't really do that isn't a great option either because the how you understand these things has huge, huge implications on all the things we're about to start talking about. Like, what do you do with Israel? What do you do with the law? Yes. So it's perfectly valid, guys, as a Bible teacher and a student of Scripture to look at these two systems and say, which of these seems to align with the plain reading of Scripture and where the Lord is putting my heart? Pick one. Don't, 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 um, you don't need to be a hipster here <laughs> in theology, right? It's important to look at these. And I, I think to me, the, the plain reading of scripture and preventing you from getting twisted into weird knots by your system points you towards dispensationalism. I'm, I'm quite biased. Yeah, I think that's the plain reading of scripture is, is the, the, the thing. And, and to define this term here, mm -hmm. yeah. to be a dispensationalist, there's a lot of qualifiers that are important to be added. But this means that we understand within the unfolding of salvation history, God had several distinct stages, or as we call them, dispensations in how he administered his house, his oikonomia. That it wasn't just, you know, um, the opposite of this is called covenant theology. And this is the belief that there has only ever been one or maybe two covenants that God has done. There's only ever been the covenant of grace or the covenant of law. And that when the covenant of law ended, the covenant of grace started, and that's been it. Or it's all been the covenant of grace, and the covenant of law is really just a footnote within the broader picture. Uh, I think you can you can gain all the benefits of viewing history that way without subscribing to that system. And we'll talk about it more in a little bit. But I think you see it described here uh, of the changing from one stage of salvation history to another in Galatians 3. Paul says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. 
So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Glorious set of verses there. Mm. Now, what Paul is saying is God administered his house. The people of God approached God one way in the past, and now we're approaching him differently. Right. Although it's all through faith, as we said, you know, the law with its sacrifices and its laws and all of that, he said, Paul says, that's done now because it fulfilled his purpose and now we're moving in towards Christ. A dispensationalist recognizes that from old covenant to new covenant was not the only time God did that, but that there were right. other times the Lord did this as well. For example, uh, you'd call Adam and Eve in the garden were under what's sometimes called the dispensation of innocence, meaning salvation, you know, like eternal life was still to be found by trusting God, obeying his commandments, but primarily by trusting God. And what it was said was, don't eat the, don't eat the fruit and live in the garden. And then when Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out of the garden, they were still supposed to come to God and believe in it still by faith, right? I'm not going to keep hammering that. It was always by faith, right? But uh, that's what's then called the dispensation of conscience, Right? It was up to each person's individual conscience to come to the Lord. You know, that's why the Lord is telling Cain, sin is crouching at the door, but you must rule over it. Right? Uh, then after sin just grows and grows and God floods the world, in Genesis chapter 9, you have the beginning of a new dispensation. God makes a new covenant with Noah. Right. And this is what's called the administration of or the dispensation of government sometimes. God changes the rules. In fact, God changed the the whole world. Mm -hmm. The if I don't want to dive into this whole rat's nest as much fun as it might be, but uh, God changed the climate. God changed the nature of animals. God changed the I mean all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to you know address that in another season one day. But he says now you have the right to execute somebody that executes somebody else, and you guys may eat you may eat animals. What God is saying from now on, in order to restrain evil and guide people towards faith in the coming Messiah. I'm going to be establishing government. I'm going to be establishing authority on, among men. Then you get to the covenant with Abraham, right? The covenant dispensation of promise. Uh, you get the covenant of Moses, the dispensation of law, David's own covenant, which isn't really a different dispensation, but it's important within the broader one. Then Jesus comes and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And mm -hmm. now we relate to God totally differently. And uh, we're going to talk more about this, but I'm just trying to show you all Later on, Jesus is going to return during the millennium. He's going to rule with an iron fist, with no Satan, no temptation. Righteousness will be enforced by God's immortal kings who have authority over his angels. Seems different. That's a new dispensation. <laughs> yeah. And then ultimately, you've got the dispensation of eternity, which is when God rolls up the sky like a scroll and there's a new heaven and a new earth. So we're going to I'm kind of look at an overview of this system here. But uh, I mean, Zach, that's that when you just look at that, I mean, that seems eminently biblical, doesn't it? I mean, you're not doing anything fancy. You're just saying these are the stages through which God has worked. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, honestly, I think sometimes a lot of the differences of opinion between dispensational and covenant guys that like, there are some areas where there's a ton of overlap and you're describing... Uh, yeah, it's mostly overlap. Right. You're describing similar things and you might just be labeling them differently. For example, a dispensational theologian, we would tend to look at some of these things and be a little more specific about certain periods of, of the way God works. Whereas a covenant theologian would pretty much just wrap all those and say, yes, those are all un encompassed underneath my umbrella, the old covenant. 
right? But he would still see those. He sees that there's differences. He just kind of labels them differently. Yeah. Now, where the differences come in are what more what you think that some of those things mean. <laughs> yeah. And but so it's important to see, like you said, yeah, it's we're looking at the same material. We're looking at scripture and we're doing our best to reason and lay it out right. And I, I, to me, the reason why it's helpful to see the differences here is because those differences made made big differences in those people's lives and how they related to the Lord yes. and how they walked. And also they make big differences in how we interpret what what happened, right? Yeah, and we're going they to make we're very going to get big differences. To the, the other way of looking at this here and right. why it matters. But uh, here's what I want to say first. Um, I think dispensational theology is at its best as a descriptive system, not as a proscriptive system. What does that mean? What I mean by that is, if you are using the theology that we are outlining in this episode to describe what you read in scripture. And as your best attempt to collate the information you are given, that's when dispensationalism is good. Where it goes wrong is when you come up with a rigid grid that you try to lay over every section of scripture. Um, and you can end up at some very weird places. You can end up as most do not, but there are some that say, uh, you were saved under the old covenant through keeping the law. That is absolutely not the case. That is not how how you right, were saved. Right, right, right. Right. It is by faith that you keep the law. Right. And the prophets make that abundantly clear, don't they? I despise your love offerings. I despise your new moons. Right. Or you have people that subdivide the uh, dispensation so much that, like, you're splitting up things like like the Book of Acts was its own apostolic dispensation. And that's why we <laughs> right. don't believe in the gift of tongues because that dispensation is over. Um, and uh, you know, there, there are people that will give a whole long list of, of things that describe a dispensation. Like they all had a covenant. They all had a promise. They all had a test. They all had a failure of the test. Um, mm-hmm. Those are all fine. I find, though, that sometimes they feel a little artificial in order to fit a, a system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think that they're wrong necessarily. I'm just thinking when I come to the Bible, I, I want to th- – this is just how God did it. And I think that uh, you can be guilty of that. And I'm not going to say, well, what's the dispensational position on this? I'm going to say, what does the Bible say? And uh, as I do that, I think this seems the most natural way to to read this. Right. When people start splitting hairs and subdividing scripture, uh, that's a problem. And, you know, the biggest accusation is, well, you believe in different means of salvation across history. But the book of Acts says that... Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Right. This is why we believe in the harrowing of hell, that Jesus, as Peter said, went to the spirits in prison and preached the gospel to them. And this is why Paul says that Jesus led captivity captive, because those that were in the grave, that were in Sheol, were being comforted, but they could not enter into the presence of the Lord. They were still dead. There was no resurrection. There was no triumph, because atonement for sins had not been made yet. Mm-hmm. So those that were anticipating and looking forward to the day when the serpent would have his head crushed, then the Lord saw that. And the Lord in his wisdom is able to foreknow who is to be saved. And um, do you think we've said it enough, Zach, that there's, we don't believe in multiple ways of salvation with this theology? Yeah. Here? Well, and, but, but like you said, that can sometimes be a thing that gets brought up as, oh, well, you know, you're splitting things up so much that now it's basically two different ways, but it's important to point that out because it, because, because when we talk about Israel, it's going to become very important again, but hold that thought. Yeah, uh, and that, that's what covenant theology, where we would majorly de- depart with them. Mm. Uh, a covenant theologian believes there's only ever been one, and as I said, sometimes they split it into two pieces, um, but 
one covenant that God has ever established. It was made in eternity past between God and his son, Jesus Christ. Um, and what the problem is, is they say that because we've only ever been under one administration of God's grace, the promises that God made to Israel, for example, right. uh, don't apply to them because that wasn't anything different than what God was always doing. And now that God has a new people, meaning the church, uh, you don't we, you don't have to apply those any longer, or you know you lead to replacement theology that Israel has been replaced by the church, and and that can lead to some dangerous places. So we acknowledge the unity of God's plan, but to fail to say that there is a difference between the law of Moses and the grace of Jesus, and that the promises God made were just they were just you know an example for the rest of us, and He didn't actually mean them that. That seems uh, overly proscriptive, that you're trying to put your system into the for Scripture. Sure, for sure. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So, to sum it up, there are stages in salvation history that we call dispensations. They're all part of a unified will of God, but they represent different administrations of God's house, governed by the different covenants that he made with his people. And as again, it is best to be a descriptive dispensationalist, arriving at your system from the text, not trying to put it back into the word as the covenantalists do, where you've got to ignore a lot of things that have been said uh, in order to to fit your system. So uh, Charles Ryrie says a dispensation, he defines it, and it's the best one here. A dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. Hmm. So Zach, most of the time, we're going to look at most of these uh these attributes here. Most of the time, a dispensations act starts with a covenant. Isn't that right? Yeah. So like, let's take for, uh, what's a good one that uh, let's take. Uh, so Noah leaves the ark and God says, okay, like you said, okay, there's been some changes around here. <laughs> if you look around, like, every, you know, pardon our dust, the whole, the whole thing has been covered in water. Now it's, you know, emerging from the water and drying out. Most everything is dead. And God says, okay, now here's the new rules by which I want you to, to play right? That is a new, God makes a covenant with Noah. He says, look, I'm going to hang my bow in the clouds and that's going to symbolize that I'm no longer going to judge the world in this way by water. Now I want you to do this. I want you to perform this for me. There's a sacrifice that's involved. It's a, and, and, um, you know, that, that these are very typical things that a person in the ancient world, by the way, would understand would happen with a covenant is mm -hmm. a king would come to you and say, here is the rules. Yeah, like a treaty yeah. would be a, a good way to describe he it. He would say, here are the rules. You're going to abide by them. We're going to make some sort of sacrifice to say that we're going to do this. And here's my end and here's your end. So that that's what God's doing with Noah is he's saying, look, I've done this. Now I, here's how I want you to live. Here are some changes to what I said previously. And, and, you know, here's a sacrifice, here's here's this sign of it. Yeah, the United States Constitution could be called our national covenant. Like, this yeah, is sure. how we're, this is what keeps us together. Uh, so there's always one of those. And even if you go back to to Adam, well, there was no covenant between God and Adam. In the, but it, later on, I believe in the, the Psalms or one of the prophets, it describes Adam and it says he transgressed the covenant. Mm. That That's how the, and the Old Testament is covenantal. And they think in covenant terms right. when they read things. So... Adam had a covenant with God and he broke it. And, uh, you know, there was no formal one between Cain and Abel, but you can see that they're offering sacrifices. They have a relationship with God and he's telling them what needs and to Cain be done. And Cain is cast out yeah. from, because of breaking it. So, so it's, yes. it's, it's, it's and functioning. And they all broke the, it eventually, right, except it's functioning Noah. the same way. So Abraham made a covenant with the Lord. Yep. God renewed it with Isaac. He renewed it with Jacob. Uh, he renewed it 
at at Exodus after the Exodus with Moses and the children of Israel, right. and he added to it. And in many ways, uh, Paul makes the point that the law of Moses is is a subset of the promise made to Abraham. But I think it's pretty clear that's when a new dispensation began because now there are laws, now there are dietary restrictions, now there is a legal structure that's put in place, and then Jesus made a new covenant with us uh, in the at the at the Last Supper, and the millennium is going to be the consummation and the fulfillment of that new covenant, mm-hmm. and and that's you know we're going to get into all that. But within that covenant, the second thing there, so there's a promise that God makes. It's usually an inauguration; something new has begun. Then there's a set of rules or regulations for mankind to follow. So these are not always, you know, the morality for everybody. Sometimes these are specific rules like, you know, don't eat pigs or, you know, right. circumcise your children as a as a sign of separation to me. But they're necessary for God's purpose. So easy one, Zach, in the Garden of Eden, the commandment was what? Don't eat from don't the tree. Don't eat the fruit. <laughs> right, right. And they did. Yeah. They did. Thanks. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and they all had that, right? right? You know, God told Abraham, if you depart from your house and you walk before me, I'll be your God and you're, you know, you will be mm-hmm. my son and your children will be my people. And the, the children of Israel had a bunch of commandments. And um, the commandment for the new covenant is simultaneously to not sin, but ultimately this is the work that the Lord requires of us, Jesus said, to believe on Jesus Christ whom Mm -hmm. God sent. These are specifically to fulfill God's purpose for that dispensation. Now, talk about this for a little bit, Zach, that with Noah, God told Noah, y'all can eat animals now, right? and you can execute people who, who murder. So these are things, God is not inventing new morality no. But he's making new commandments that change his administration. So how? what's the difference here? God's not changing right and wrong, but he's changing his administration. Talk about that a little he, bit. Well, in, in, and a lot of these end up, they just end up in practical changes in how people relate either to each other or to God. And like you said, it's not changing. God's not saying, hey, murder's okay now. I changed my mind. Now you can murder each other. He's <laughs> saying, right? He's saying, hey, murder has always been wrong including, you know, the fact that I cast Cain out for committing murder. But now I'm going to add this additional stipulation. Murder is wrong. And I am going to allow humans to avenge that murder governmentally on, on the murderer. Right. Yes. Now, and, and this is important. That is a change because Cain, right. God put a mark on him and said, Nope, nobody touches yeah. him. We're not going to allow him to be, you know, aven- able to be yeah. avenged. And, and that way. vengeance for murder was Lamech's thing that he right. did in the book of Genesis. And was part of the reason why God and it's judged. Why it's, it's why it all spiraled out of control. Right. As God said, no, they're, they're, I'm not going to allow them to continue. And in in a sense, in an alteration of the, of the rules and administration that God was allowing for mankind, he said, now to prevent us getting into a situation like we had before the flood, which remember, God delayed the flood. The flood was, depending on what chronology you follow, it's about 1,500 years after creation. Yeah, there was a long believe. time. Yeah, so so God time. had allowed a long period of of horrible things to happen, and then it said, "Okay, we're not going back there. Here's here's part of how we're not going to go back there. If someone kills someone, you kill him now. We we don't allow this continued cycle of violence. You end it immediately. This is so terrible. We're putting a stop to it. Right. And we now, value life this much. That doesn't mean that God beforehand a- approved or you know murder. It means that no, it, and it doesn't change. You know, right. So so it doesn't change the morality, but it does change how things work. Same thing with animals. It wasn't you know animals weren't sinful to eat before, but God had said here here's plants you eat these, and now He's saying here I'm now allowing 
this, I'm allowing you to also eat these that I've provided. Yeah, there have been some creation scientists that have thought perhaps the reason for that is because God had so altered the climate and was reducing the lifespan of people and seems right. to have weakened them in some, whether through the changes he made at the flood or just sovereignly, like through miraculously mm-hmm. touching the body, that they were going to need the uh, nutrients that animals could provide. So right. God changed the game is the whole point yeah. here. And that's what God has done every time. It's And it, this is why we mean we're not, People accuse, well, so, oh, so murder is wrong bef- right before, but now it's wrong. Now it's God is changing the rules. That's what God told Abraham. Y'all are going to be circumcised now. Right. And if you don't, you will be in sin for disobeying me. But if some Hittite doesn't circumcise himself, he's not wrong because he's right. not under this covenant and crucially, with me. Noah was, and this is why it's so important to realize that this is why it's so important to not over-exaggerate this, well, God doesn't change his mind thing, because you, when you settle your mind on that point, you miss a lot of important things in, in covenant and dispensational history. G- well, before, was was Noah circumcised? No. Was Noah in sin for not being circumcised? No. <laughs> Why? Because God had not asked that of him. God had not made that stipulation part of his covenant. But now God is saying, hey, I am now deciding that as a marker of my new covenant with Abraham, your children and you will be circumcised. That's going to be different from everybody else. This becomes so important when we start asking questions about the Mosaic law as well. So this is why we're kind of building this foundation is, yes, God is allowed to say, I am now making a new rule that I want you to keep as part of this new covenant I'm making with you. And to go back to that word, we use dispensation, which comes from the Greek word oikonomia, which Mm -hmm. means house administration. House mm-hmm. law, mm-hmm. God is changing. You know, your dad ever sits you down and say, "Okay, from now on." <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I do that all the I've time. I've just done that with my kids. <laughs> yeah, from now yep. on, here's the rules. I now. don't want to see this ever. Right. The Lord is changing the rules. The next thing, number three, a promise from God. Mm-hmm. God places Himself under responsibility in response to the faithfulness of His people under that covenant. Right. The Lord always says, "You do this, and I will do this." Right? You know, Adam and Eve tend the garden and don't eat the fruit. And this world is yours. You do whatever you want with it. Right. Uh, you know, you must rule over your sin. It's crouching at the door. And don't worry, I'll provide a, a, a savior for you. Okay, know what? You've got you've to keep this world in line. And I will I will take care of you in this new wilderness that has just been, you know, this wastland yeah. that and I'm sending you I out to. I flood it again. Right? Yeah, I'm, yeah, right? And there's, we'll get into more of that later. And I, most of all, Abraham's covenant, right? I'll bless you. I'll be your God. I'll make right. you like the stars in the universe, right? And I'll, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And I mean, the blessings that Jesus has promised those who believe in him, right? There's always a promise that God makes. And you, you even could speak of the covenants and the promises almost interchangeably hmm. because they're they're that wonderful. And then four and five, if you're going to do numbers here, with every different dispensation, there's been a failure of people to maintain that covenant right. and the judgment that God has poured out. So the Garden of Eden ended with judgment upon Adam and Eve. Uh the flood ended the second dispensation. Uh, God had to judge the people at the Tower of Babel and enter into what's called the times of ignorance, according to, according to Paul in Acts 17. You know, uh, many people see, this is when it starts to get touchy, like how do you really categorize some of these things? Sure. But uh, many people see Israel's failure to worship the Lord is what resulted in their judgment in Egypt for 400 years, uh, that the children of Israel were exiled for failing to keep the law yep. of Moses. That's an easy um, That the... Uh, many people, and this is what leads to some interesting uh, in-house discussions among dispensationalists, that <laughs> is the rapture going to be uh, a worldwide global celebration of a victorious church or God's removal of, a, of an apostate church, 
the, of the last remnant that remains within a worldwide apostate church. That mm-hmm. how is that going to end? The millennium will end with the conflagration of the whole world, right? The the age of grace will end with the great tribulation. So and this is important because um, yes. it sets our expectations, right? If we if we don't understand this important part of again, we're we're thinking broadly right now in salvation history. Hey, in salvation history, how have we men and women done in keeping our end of the bargain? The answer is we've never kept our end of the bargain, right? Completely or fully. So that's important data when you then you go and, and forecast, how do we expect that we will keep our current bargain that we're in, right? And this all yes. becomes important as you look at these things. Yeah. And as you, I think maybe you can see some of these are stronger than others. Sure. And then some of them are like, oh, well, I guess you didn't really have, remember this is, if it's describing, this is the best way to, to put it. I think when you're talking about dispensations, the Bible is a story. History is a story. His story, you might say, <laughs> and the dispensations are the chapters in the story. Right. Uh, that is, I think it's there's nothing more simple to prove from scripture. Right. I, I sound like a like an old Puritan. There's nothing more simple than to prove from the scriptures. <laughs> well, that, and also like that, like that you God said, does things differently sometimes. And it's descriptive too. Like don't you know you don't got to lean into it that much. We didn't receive the different dispensations and their conditions on stone tablets from the Lord, right? We received His Word from from the Lord, and now we're using these this system. I think systematic theology is always best when it's descriptive, right? Of okay, oh, yes. this seems like it describes what I'm seeing here in Scripture, and so I'm going to use this handy kind of overlay to, to, to describe what I see, not, Hey, this is the way it's got to be. Now let me go and, and make sure I push everything into this mold, you know? Yeah. Um, that's, so yeah, that's not good. God, I mean, the whole point here is that God is not idle in history. Right. God did not spin the top and let it roll, you know, or, you know, spin the Beyblade, whatever generation you come from, <laughs> let it rip and then just leave it. And when it spins out, then God will step in and pick up the pieces. God acts to preserve his plan and to keep his promises. He still desires a world filled with his people for his own glory. He's been bringing it to the fullness of time in Christ. We're waiting for that to finish up and we will explain why in the course of this series. But uh, that's, that's how the Lord has done it. We believe he's active in history. So, We've already done this uh, quite a bit. We kind of got ahead of ourselves, and that's fine. Um, I want to look at the the trajectory of salvation history and the various dispensations and the covenants that correspond to them and, and how it's gone. And uh, it's best to follow this like a story because that's how the Bible presents it to us rather than forcing the story to conform to our, our system. So the first one, we already, we'll go through these. And Zach, if you want to chime in at any point, you just do that. We've already talked about these some, but... We start with the time before the fall. God created the world. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, outside this garden is a wild, untamed wilderness. Go out and make something of this world. Fill the world. Subdue it. Multiply in it. You know, again, you can see the motivations of God and creation being, you know, imbued to Adam right there, right? Go make something new. Fill it with your kids and subdue it. Become king of it, Adam. And this is what's called the dispensation of innocence. It was prior to sin. And the covenant he made is in Genesis 1 and 2. Work it, fill the earth, exercise dominion over it. And the commandments were not to eat of the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Hosea 6, 7 is that verse I was thinking of before. I have it here in my notes that Hosea 6, 7 says that Adam transgressed the covenant. This is sometimes called the Edenic covenant, meaning the covenant in the Garden of Eden, uh, the dispensation of, of innocence. He wanted a world with his people for the glory of his name. And that's what he had. But we know that it did not last very long because, as always, they broke the covenant. They ate of the tree. That led to their judgment, cast out of paradise, and eventually to their death. But 
again, Zach, we see that it's almost like Satan keeps coming at God's people to right. wreck things, right. but God adjusts to keep his plan going, right? Like the, the Lord knows how to how to keep the, the plan moving and doesn't, you know, put all of his, you know, oh, now that Adam and Eve failed, I guess I guess it's done. <laughs> right. Uh, he, he adjusts the economy of his world. Didn't adjust his plan. He adjusted the economy and outworking of his plan to accomplish the same goal. And this is where we move into the second one, which is what's called the Adamic covenant, the covenant made with Adam where God promised to send somebody to crush the head of the serpent, explaining the moral requirements, as we've said to Cain in Genesis 4, verse 7, and it's a dispensation of conscience because there was no structure to ensure obedience. That's the big thing. It's up to you. You guys know what's right. Now go do it. There was no temple. Uh, there was no priesthood. There was none of that. It was just God talking to people, telling them to do the right thing. Personal righteousness was the commandment. You were required to bring sacrifices and honor me. And uh, there were righteous people at this time. Abel was righteous. Enoch was righteous. But Zach, it was not works-based religion. Cain tried works-based religion. And Abel served God because he brought it with a pure heart. And and Enoch says he walked with God. That's anticipating the fellowship we have in Christ so, I mean, right, this was never about works. Nope. None of these things were. And, you know, Noah, it says, was a righteous man. So, okay, the, the, that's that's why Noah was saved. It was because he was righteous and he didn't do anything wrong. That's not true. Later on in the story, you see him getting drunk and falling out naked and doing all kinds of ridiculous stuff, right? It's, it's and this is this is very important because sometimes we can see this, this language used in the Bible of this person is righteous or whatever, and we can see, oh, so it's that that's why God's using them. It's because they were good. No, because so many of our Old Testament heroes, you go back and look at their story and you say, well, that's all, some crazy stuff there. It's always been that God is u- choosing to use his chosen people despite all of the things that they're doing, right? That's yes. always been part of the economy at any stage. God's always saying, listen, I want you to do this, and here's some provisions I'm making when you fail at that. Yeah. They're, they're, those have always been included. So, yeah, no, 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 it's it's of course not that. And and you, you can see that even, like you said, even just from the little hints that we have of what life was like before the flood, we can see that there was an expectation, like there's even that little hint that says, you know, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Yeah. We, it's it's kind of this little hint there in the passage, but it seems like the indication is like, look, things got so bad and God was allowing things to get so bad that at some point people said, wait, we need to actually start talking to God. I mean, what a foreshadowing of that. I mean, and, and what a rebuke to those who believe sure. there were different means of salvation because there may be some of them out there, but... They, Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices and don't come at it and say, well, Cain brought fruit and right. Abel brought a right. lamb. And that, that's the difference. No, no, heart, no. Man. What, yeah. you, the old covenant required whatever you had needed to be brought. Right. I, I, that is not the point. And the Hebrews tells us that because Abel's heart was righteous and Cain's heart yep. was wicked. That's why God rejected Cain. He was saying from the very beginning, it's not enough just to do the work. Right. It's not enough just to be religious. Your heart needs to be right. So that was always, always been the case. But... They blew that dispensation too, of course. Uh, you had the episode with the Nephilim, um, <laughs> and it, it just got to the point where Small God was thing. like, that's it. So the judgment that came was the flood. God brought a violent end to that dispensation, saving only Noah and his family. Eight souls, as the Bible says. Then, as we've said, God made a new covenant with Noah called the Noahic covenant, right? The <laughs> covenant made with, yeah, <laughs> made with Noah, inaugurating a new dispensation, which is often called the dispensation of justice. Uh-huh. I've also heard it called the dispensation of government, that God established society to be the safeguard 
for what is right and uh, to command people to still do the right things. He makes radical new rules, capital punishment, carnivorism for the first time. He reduces the age. He changes the seasons mm. and he introduces cycles in history for the first time. And, and again, God's reducing right. the age. That's important to remember. House rules. God says, okay, the new house rules are you don't live you to nine hundred. Nope. Yeah. Now you live to one hundred and twenty. Or you know, with no and you actually begin to see this degrading. Even even Abraham was still receiving some of that blessing, but then it continues to degrade, degrade. And there's a certain part in scripture where you can look at the ages and you never see somebody living much past hundred anymore. Yeah, well people say, uh people go you know, well, it's, you know, well, it's so weird. They all lived so old in the old in the early part of the Bible, and then it just get to normal ages when you get to real history. It's like, no, they know. Yeah, it was I, weird. That's dude. when Jacob said, <laughs> right. "Short and painful have been the years of my sojourning, and they've not attained to the years of my father." Jacob knew. He's like, "We are not what we used to be." For sure. And Moses talks about in Psalm ninety how the Lord has given men seventy years if you're lucky. It was a that, safeguard that, and a that's punishment. That's what the Lord did. That God was he, saying, "Look, now, 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 the house rule is: I'm not going to allow you to spin out your house evil rules that long." Is such a good way to describe. Yeah, I think this. It, well, it's that's, almost like I'm that's what the that. Greek says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we're going to have to take a maybe our next season and talk about uh, creation a little bit because yeah, that'd be fun. There's so I, much I mean, fun stuff to talk about in there. The I'll just say briefly: the whole idea. I, I, if you read your Bible and you see what the Bible describes, you can't look at the world as it exists now and just work it backwards and see what was it like at the beginning because God changed it. Yeah. The rules are not the same like they used to be. And the Bible tells us that. And mm-hmm. Peter tells us that people are going to willingly forget that. But right. we were trying to remember it here. So the promise that God made then was never to judge the earth again. Okay, right? Completely. Yeah, I'm not going to... By water. Through water, right? I'm not going to flood the world (laughs) anymore. And can you imagine, I mean, the arrogance, the demonic flouting of God's grace by the homosexual community appropriating the rainbow as their symbol, where God said, I'm not going to judge the world through through flood. The last time there was terrible sexual depravity, God destroyed the world. And now Mm. he'll throw that back in God's face. It's it's terrible. But uh, mankind didn't even obey this time. They didn't spread out and fill the world. They banded together and they built the Tower of Babel. Uh, which forced God to confuse their languages, which was the judgment that came upon them. And uh, what's been unique about these first three dispensations here, that of innocence, that of conscience, that of judge uh, justice, is that they've all been universal. They've applied to everybody that existed at the time. Right. But what keeps happening is that this isn't, this is is not going to where it ought to be. And that when people are together, as God, God says, when people in their sin combine there's nothing that can stop them, and I've, I'm going to have to do this because God could, as we've been saying, sovereignly step in and just make things the way he wanted, but that's not how God's doing it. Mm-hmm. God is choosing to work in the within the rules that he himself has prescribed for, for humanity. So in order for God to have a world filled with his people for his glory, he's got to crush the serpent and deal with sin through the seed of woman. A man has to be born who's going to destroy everything that Satan is doing. Right. So the next covenant God makes is not with all the world. It's with one man right? Who through whom God is going to bring about this one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And I'll just say in passing, maybe not in passing, maybe we should talk about this. This is where, according to Acts 17, Paul says the whole world entered the times of ignorance. That while God is making covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, they're operating under this covenant, this dispensation that God created with Israel. The rest of the world is still functioning under the, the dispensation of justice. Right. The people that were living in Australia at this time were not bound by the law of Moses. 
They were bound by the last thing God had said to everybody. He was doing something different with the Gentiles than he was doing with the Jews. It was all leading to the same place. But this is one of the biggest differences between covenant theology and dispensational theology. Yeah. That there was a difference. Yeah, there was a difference. And and this is, again, I don't, I keep jumping to what we're going to talk about towards the end of our series here, but this will become important later. <laughs> put, a, put a note here. There was a difference. And that idea that there was ignorance, in other words, they had been left with, hey, and, and people can struggle with this, but I'm sorry, it's just what it says. They had been left with, life is hard. You're going to get a ruler that's going to tell you not to do gross sins, and he's going to punish you for them. Call on the name of the Lord. Now, now we see in Romans that that's enough information for people to, to, right. to God know God. That's right. responsible for it. For sure. So so that you can't look at them and say, oh, well, they're not responsible. No, you, that's enough for them to know God. And we see in other places in the scripture, people, there's many, many times you see people coming from outside of God's chosen people with enough knowledge to seek God from them. So we know that it's it's entirely possible. You see the the, mag, the magi and this centurion and this these people are coming saying, I know that you know God and I know that I need to know God because of what's been revealed to me just from my life, right? So this is how God was operating at the time with everyone before he reached down specifically to Abraham of, you know, Ur of the Chaldees and said, hey, you, moon worshiper, are going to now be my chosen people, right? Isn't it interesting that Abraham's cities that that he was in worshiped the moon and now today the Islamic tradition, religion, has appropriated the crescent moon as its as its symbol as they try to claim their old Abrahamic heritage, so to speak. I just find that kind of thing fascinating to consider. But it's just like one of those, like, shouldn't alarm bells be going off somewhere in here? But in any case, uh, we're talking about the the Gentiles. So we're going to be looking for the rest of our time here mostly at the Jews, because that's how the Bible goes, right? But... After Genesis 11, the rest of the world, my ancestors, they enter the times of ignorance. The Bible says God gave them over mm. to usurping demonic rulers. Yeah. And there's a great debate to be had over were they did were they demons when, you know, functioning like fallen angels when God gave them over to them or did they fall in the process? There's mm. some interesting debate to be had over that. The point is, they were being given over to human and angelic stewards. They were told to serve the Lord, but they were not given access to the words. They were not given access to the oracles or to the prophets. And uh, they entered times of great sin and great wickedness. And God knows that. Paul says in Acts 17, God overlooked the times of ignorance, meaning God is going to judge them based on the revelation that they had. But... When Jesus came and said, now that time is over and the whole world needs to know. Do you think that has something to do with what you said with the harrowing of hell because how hell was not, well, this is a big rabbit trail. You can cut this if you want. No, this is what we're talking Uh, about uh, But uh, do you think that's why, and I'm really reaching now into stuff that we don't really necessarily, we're not even given to know, but is that why Jesus goes down to Sheol to preach to the spirits? Because he's saying, look, I am now the fulfillment of this time of ignorance and you now have this choice to act on what it is that you've, you know, the information that you had, meaning were there people who knew, Hmm. you know, knew there was a God were attempting to worship him. And then were basically waiting in Sheol, which at the time wasn't divided. Like it, you know, it wasn't the, the, the Jews clearly understood that Sheol was a place you went. It wasn't heaven or hell yet. Right. Yeah. It was the grave. It was death. And you were the the unrighteous were tormented and the righteous were uh, comforted. In other words. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's just an interesting question. I, I think that that's a fair I think that I'd, I'd be willing to go there while it's admitting that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specific information sure about it. Sure, it doesn't. Yeah. That if there was a, you know, I mean, the Bible says if a, you know, if a unrighteous man turns from his righteousness, 
uh, turns from his wickedness, will I will he not be saved? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that God is so gracious that if any Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you seek me, you will find me. Right. That were there as you might call them honest pagans? Were there those that knew that God was real and that uh, they were calling out to Him and doing their best? And then the Lord sent them to be comforted and shale until the time Jesus arrives and says, "I'm the one you've all been waiting for." Right. Some of the church fathers believed this about men like Plato. They believed right. that he he had as much a grasp of the truth as he could get without knowing the the law and mm-hmm. knowing the scriptures. And God, if if not, God certainly held the people responsible. So that's a very interesting question. I, sure. I think we'll probably be rather... Uh, I do not believe that somebody could be an idolater and be saved. I, you know, I think oh, that's right. part of it. I, and but, to um, be clear, I'm not saying, you know, no, I don't, whether, yeah. however this works, God is righteous either way. I'm not saying it has to be this way for me to be okay. God would with, be just to send us all to hell of and course. save no one. What I think is interesting <laughs> though, is that scripture makes, like you said, these ideas about the age of ignorance and, and the fact that he preaches to the spirits in bondage to me means that God, like you said, that God understood that, no, I left you with this. I was asking you to be faithful to that. Now let's go see how you have been faithful. And for, unfortunately, because of human sin, most people, th- their response was not to follow the Lord. No. And you know, I, not at all. It's um, certainly, I mean, you, you can't make that claim now because Paul says God no, commands now no, no, no. all yeah. men everywhere to repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Right. And let's so, be clear, there's a difference now in what your state is after you die too. That's why I'm asking about that time. Once Jesus now has died, there's no the Bible says yeah. now you 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 know, now it's our task to go herald that to people because there is enough information to convict them now yeah. that they need to be aware of. So yeah, so the the answer to the question is do we believe that the question is do we believe that somebody could have potentially been saved who was not part of the nation of Israel? I think the short answer is, you know, the easy answer is no, but let's consider for a minute. There's somebody living up in Britannia. Right. And no chance of ever encountering the law of Moses. But if that person honestly called upon God with a pure heart, rejected the falseness of idolatry, which the Bible says you ought to know. Mm -hmm. I don't care what your culture is. You ought to know that this is stupid and means nothing. Right, right. And rejected idolatry and said, God, wherever you are, will you please help me? I can't save myself. None of this will help me. God, wherever you are, will you please save me? Would that person be saved, even though they didn't know the name of Jesus, until he came? Mm-hmm. We, well, we believe that men like David were saved, even though they didn't know the name of Jesus. They died in hope, right? Hope that someday the Lord will send his His Savior. You're not going to leave me in Sheol forever. You're going to bring me out. Um, but, no, you know, nobody was ever saved by by anything other than faith, either, either anticipatory faith or faith in the, in the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, that's the times of ignorance. Great discussion to have there. Um you know, and, and I'd be remiss not to mention that the rest of us have a responsibility under the Great Commission to take the gospel to the rest of, of the course, world. Because yeah. there's no more patience as right. far as that's concerned. Because anymore. that's the point of that verse. Is he says, those were the times of ignorance, it's but over now, now. Yeah, they're, they're certainly not. Anyway, yeah. back to the But back yeah, to the so we get to, um, and, and we might skip a little faster over this because it's going to be where we spend the most of our rest of our time through this mm-hmm. series here. Um, the nation of Israel. Genesis 12. We're introduced to a man named Abram or Avram later changed to Avraham and with him God makes a new covenant. He says, "I will bless you, Abraham, 
and through your seed, all the world will be blessed. And you connect this back to Genesis 3.15. It says, you are going to have a son and that son, you know, or grandson, you get the idea. That descendant of yours will be the seed of woman that I said is going to crush the head of the serpent. This is called the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. And this inaugurated the dispensation of promise because the controlling administration of the world at this point is centered on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, believing God's promise. And it was not made with all people with a specific people. Big change. And this right? is why. Now God's saying I'm only yes. working with, I'm, I, well, not I'm only working with, but I am working with you uniquely. I yes. am pulling aside you, and now within my house, there is this house that I'm making. That's And he says, you're going to be my people mm-hmm. as opposed to these other people, right? Which is, a yeah. that's a difference from how God's acting much. And this is what makes dis- dispensationalism unique. And I think of all the things, if you had to pick between the two, this is the one. We recognize that Israel is distinct from the nations and always will be. Mm-hmm. Through Israel, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Jesus came from Israel, but Jesus did not eliminate God's promises and purposes for Israel. We'll talk about this before. But, uh, you know, the dispensation of, of promise, I, I, I want to move on because we are going to talk about this quite a bit. Right. But um, the Israelites multiplied in Egypt. God liberates them, and you get to the next one. He made a new covenant with them at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And this is what's called the Mosaic covenant, the dispensation of law, where God promised to bless them or curse them based on how they kept his commandments. Again, not with all the people, not with the Maasai tribes, not with the Chinese, not with the the Sioux or the Algonquin. It is with the Israelites specifically. And God says, I'm going to give you a promised land, all of it. We'll talk about, about that soon. And what's important to note is that these regulations that God gave Israel, just like the sacrifices that were made by Cain and Abel, were not means of salvation. The sacrifices of blood of, of the blood of bulls and goats, keeping the law, circumcising your children, not trimming the edges of your beard, none of this was ever meant to save you. The Bible says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Samuel told Saul, have I as much delight in burnt offerings as with a a pure heart? Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, right? And uh, Isaiah is the one who said, your love feasts make me sick. Malachi said, I wish one of you had the guts to shut the temple doors. Right. So, So in other words, it's not, again, God is establishing new rules within his house. The rules don't change God's heart. God's heart is always, I want, I, I love you and I want you to love me, right? It's, it's, it doesn't, you know, when you make a new rule with your kids, it doesn't establish this new cheat code where they can twist your arm and get things from you in a way they haven't been able to before. It's always, hey, I love you. And, and because I love you, I've noticed some things going on around here. So I want this, you know, would you please stop eating the pigs? They're making you sick, right? Yeah. The, the, so it's, in other words, the, 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 to the, keep you separate. We're right. Gonna, yeah. We're going to talk about all the purposes of, of the law course. next time. But, but anyway, yes. Uh, yeah, in Galatians 3.11, Paul says, It is evident no one is justified before God by the law, for mm-hmm. the righteous shall live by faith, right. which is from the Old Testament. And so this was a change of the administration of God's house. It was not a means of salvation. Uh, we'll talk about the purposes of it next time, as I said, but huge topic to yeah. get into. It was to prepare <laughs> them for the promise. They broke that covenant repeatedly. Yes. And uh, God judged them and had mercy on them repeatedly. But in the midst of all that, Not beginning a new dispensation, but beginning a new covenant was when God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. This is the progress of the promise. 
He said, one day you're going to have a son who's going to sit on the throne and his kingdom is going to cover the whole earth from Jerusalem. That's what's called the Davidic covenant. And this is all part of the promise from Genesis 3.15. The seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. Abraham, in you, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. David, you will have a son that will sit on the throne. This is all the same person. And this is where you start to get the doctrine of the Messiah, mm-hmm. the promised one, the anointed one. And what you're seeing is that God is making promises that are really the same promise within these different administrations and how he's getting getting for it, uh, or how he's administrating his house. And the children of Israel, at the time of Christ, were looking forward to the dispensation of the kingdom right. that would operate under the, the promise made to David, but things went very terribly wrong. Well, the son of David was born, yeah. who was Jesus of Nazareth. He came proclaiming in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, it's almost time. He rode into Jerusalem, but what happened? The ultimate failure of the ultimate covenant and dispensation. They killed the promised one by nailing him to the cross. You might say, and I'm not being flippant at all when I say this, but it's part of one of the most tragic actions in human history comes from a failure to understand God's dispensations. They they were expecting the dispensation of the immediate physical kingdom, the, the removal of the Romans. The, they were expecting essentially the things that we see in the millennial kingdom to happen then. Yep. But that was not what God was doing. God was doing a different thing. And through their upset at the failure of that, that dispensational expectation, th- they responded rejecting their Messiah and murdering him. Yeah. So you see how these things become, they're not just... And it was a misunderstanding because the kingdom yeah. should have come then. We'll talk about this more. The that's, kingdom should have exactly come. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's true. But they could only think of it in, in terms of tradition and in right. terms of us versus them. And they were corrupt and they were selfish and how and they the had rest. interpreted the prophets, which is you know different. Yes, so anyway, yeah. I, I say that so, just to say that's why these things are so essentially important is because the the uh, a difference in interpretation of these things caused them to react violently against Jesus, against their Messiah that they should have been. Jesus said, you should have been ready. You should have been waiting and expectant. And they were, they yeah. were not. Matthew 23, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the pivotal moment of salvation history. The dispensation of law should have given way to the dispensation of the kingdom. However, Israel categorically rejected their Messiah. Yeah. The next stage of salvation history is called in the New Testament over and over again, the mystery Because it was totally unexpected and nobody saw this coming. In Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, Paul says, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. The promise had been made to Israel. The law was given to Israel. The kingdom was for Israel. But now where all these Gentiles come from? And the New Testament wrestles with the thought, all the people that are believing in Jesus 
are Greeks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not Jews. The Jews are rejecting the Messiah. It's a huge What's going on theme. here? Yeah. Well, we understand the promise to Adam was that the serpent would be crushed. Through Abraham's seed, the nations would be blessed, that the son of David would reign on the earth. God's plan from the beginning to have a world filled with his people for his glory would be inaugurated through this one. Now, God chose to use Israel to establish all of those promises. He passed over their former sins, leaving the Gentiles in the dispensation of justice, the times of ignorance. But when Christ came and Israel said, no, thank you, we have no king but Caesar, God said, fine, I'm going to reach out and save the Gentiles, just like I always said I would, without you. Mm. I'm going to make a new covenant, a covenant of grace, and you're not going to be part of it yet. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 had spoken of a new covenant that would be based on faith and the heart rather than rules and regulations, where the very terms of the covenant would be writing the law on your heart. Right. And Jesus made a new covenant with the whole world, moving them out of the times of ignorance and into what we call the dispensation of grace where we're living right now, that anybody who believes in his sacrifice on the cross will receive everlasting life. Acts 17, 30. I've referred to it. I'll read it. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. As far as concerns salvation, God does not distinguish between Jew and Gentile, but all are saved by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the most liberated, most empowering time to be alive ever. Yeah. Would you agree with that? No, it's, I mean, it's come just, on. that's what's so cool about zooming out and biblical doing this kind of biblical theology is you get to get this sense of like where we're at. The way my dad always says, he goes, this is where you are in the mall, right? <laughs> like where, like the maps. And the, if you, so some of you, I'm sorry, I forget this. Maybe there's Gen Z's listening. So you used to go to a place where all the stores were together <laughs> and there were hallways <laughs> to get to all the stores and there was a map and it said, here's where you are, right? And that's what, in, in some ways, this is what we're doing is we're saying, hey, this is where you are in all of history. All of these people, there was these times of ignorance. There was the law. There was all these other things going on. And the way you got to God, the, the administration of the house was this way. Now the administration of the house is this other way. That's yes. and, and you read the book of Hebrews. It's so much better. And that's why we don't keep the law. That's yeah. why we don't worship on, on well, on any day necessarily. It's we don't keep the covenant, dietary laws. Dispensation. The, the way right. of salvation is through grace. And guys, if it feels like we're going really fast through this last section right. here, that's because this is where we're going to focus for the rest of our series here. Mm -hmm. But we want to give you a, a, just a sense of the trajectory of this whole thing. So... God solved the spiritual problem. He delivered us from sin. He sent us out to the whole world to spread the good news. But here's the question. What happened to Israel? Right. What about that kingdom that God promised to David? Did God abandon them? Did those promises he said to Abraham, I'll make you like the sand of the seashore and I'll give you this land as a perpetual eternal covenant. Are those just spiritualized now? Absolutely not. God made a covenant with Israel and Jeremiah 33 says, God, I would, God says, I would sooner break the day and night cycle than break my covenant with Israel. Yeah. And so that becomes, there's that. <laughs> well, and that get, this is why this become, this is not a minor issue. Why you are trusting God's word in his new covenant. When he says, I will not, you know, no one will snatch them out of my hand. When he says, you you may sin, but my grace is sufficient for you. Those things you're believing by faith in God, that God's going to keep his end of the bargain. 
that, that, that all of his wrath was really expended on Jesus. Why would you trust God's word if you know God to be a rule breaker and a word breaker oh, yeah. to a previous covenant? If God if God said, you know what, I'm going to give Israel this covenant perpetually, except you messed up, so I'm going to take it away. Doesn't that change whether you can trust God in his current dispensation and covenant? I would argue it absolutely in Deuteronomy, does. The Lord, well, they, they broke the covenant, though. In Deuteronomy, God says, I'm not choosing you because you're righteous. Right. I'm right. not choosing you because you keep it. I'm choosing it because I, you because I love you. Right. So this is very important. Yeah, he's yeah. not going to break that covenant. He promised them a kingdom with the son of David ruling from Jerusalem. That has not happened yet. No. And the reason why, again, going fast now, Romans eleven twenty five, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has set Israel aside partially, meaning Jews can still be saved, but of we're not going to see a national yeah. revival. Right. And temporarily, like in Hosea chapter 3, where Hosea goes and buys back his wife out of the slave market. And he says, you will dwell as mine for many days, but you must not know a man. And so I will be to you. He's saying, you're my wife. I've redeemed you, but it's going to, we're going to need some time to heal before we come back together in, right. in sexual consummation. And that is where we live right now. That God has done everything that is necessary to redeem his bride, Israel, his, his rebellious wife, to use the old yeah. Testament terminology. But, they have not experienced the fullness of that relationship. One day he will finish his work among the Gentiles, as Paul said, then he will return to them. And according to Daniel 9, Israel has seven years of history left, which will be fulfilled during the tribulation years described in the book of Revelation. And that's one reason why we believe in a pre-trib rapture, because that's Israel's time, not our time. Right. There's also going to be a great apostasy that uh, there's a difference of opinion on that. But during that time, the Bible says the Jews are in their land, the temple exists, and they're going to face the worst persecution of all time as judgment for crucifying the Messiah, but also to wake them up, to cause them to cry out to God, to bring them to the point where they have no more temple because the Antichrist has taken it over. They cannot be in their land. They've been driven out of it. They have no ceremonies or rituals left anymore. All they have is to cry out to God. And Zechariah prophesies that God's going to pour out a spirit of repentance on them. And they're going to look on Jesus and recognize that's the one. He was the guy. And they're going to cry out to him. And he will return to crush their enemies, rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years, which will be the dispensation of the kingdom, just as he promised. How awesome is that? So really, the sixth covenant, the Davidic covenant, will govern the seventh dispensation, which is the millennium. And the seventh covenant, which is the new covenant, is right now governing the sixth dispensation, that of grace and the church. God has always desired from the very beginning of creation to have a world filled with his people for his glory. Sin came in and God at the beginning promised to crush sin and to use Israel to accomplish all of those goals. And this is all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Even the kingdom will end in rebellion. Satan will marshal his forces, the Bible says, and march on Jerusalem. But after that will come the final judgment and then a new heaven and a new earth. God doesn't waste parts of salvation history. It's not like there's, right? The Tower of Babel doesn't thwart God in such a way that he's like, oh, now I've got, even the flood didn't thwart. Even though God had to judge the world, he still says, and yet, here's what I'm going to do with what I have, right? So so in the same way, God isn't going to carve off this massive part of salvation history, which is his chosen people, Israel, and say, well, guess that was a waste. Now I'm going to, no, he is going to 
fulfill that covenant. He is going to, in other words, it's it's almost like God is saying, this piece I'm going to set aside, but I'm still going to weave it back in to the tapestry of what I'm making. He never, you know, because otherwise, like we said, that would be God admitting loss. You can't stop God. No, man. not Come at all. On. I mean, you you can't you can't stop what God's gonna do. You throw a wrench in His plans, and He works around the wrench. Yeah. And you know what's amazing is, and I, I love talking about this because it feels so edgy, but it's just what the Bible says. The Lord at the end of salvation history, when the world is over and we enter the new kingdom, not just the new kingdom, but the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be so much better than Eden was. Yeah. It's going to be better. God's not just going to turn around and bring it back. He's going to progress us forward. Because Jesus Christ has taken humanity onto himself, we are now in Christ in that way. The Bible says we will be glorified with Jesus. And John said when that day happens, we don't even know what we will be because we will be like him, seeing him as he is. Remember God told Moses, you can't look at me because you see my face, you're going to die. The Bible says we will see him. So the apostle John concludes, therefore, we must be made like him, glorified like him so that we can see him. And we don't even know exactly what that's going to mean. So let me put this in a way that just always gives me chills. The last thing Satan will see before he is thrown into the lake of fire was, is God do for the children of man what Satan falsely promised them in the garden of Eden. He said, mm-hmm. you will be like God. Yeah. It was a lie. He was deceiving them. But what the Lord does is through this whole salvation history, through the shedding of his blood and the work of his son, we will be made like him. And Satan will have to gnash his teeth for all of eternity, seeing that he lost to our God. We'll be ex- How cool is that? Oh, man? yeah. And like, and in a real way, and again, this can sound crazy to say, but this is biblical. In a very real way, we'll be exalted past the place that he arrogantly said isn't good enough for me. Mm-hmm. He, he was yes. existing in God's presence as a worship leader of some kind to glorify God and said, no, what I want is I want to be like the most high and we're going to get jumped in rank past where he was. Yeah. <laughs> right. To now, no, we're going to, we're going to judge angels. We're going to judge angels. Scripture says, and he's, that's the last thing he's going to see is look, I took these, you know, terrible meat creatures that you hate so badly. And I turned them into something more glorious than you even were in a pre-fall state. And, and now you can go ahead and, and spend eternity in the lake. Jesus of fire. wins, baby. Yeah, That's man. how the story that, that ends. Cool stuff, our Lord is a is a warrior. Yeah, man. yeah. He's he's a trash talking <laughs> and able to back it up. God. Yep. So listen, I I realize we went through a lot of information today. We just gave a summary of world history from Genesis one one to Revelation twenty two. Like, <laughs> but I hope this was a useful overview for you mm-hmm. to introduce you to the purpose of creation, uh, to introduce you to dispensational theology in general, and to walk you through kind of what the Bible says. Uh, what's the main points to realize here? God has had stages in his plan. He made covenants with man that inaugurated and regulated those stages, which we call dispensations. There's a unique place for Israel, who is the vehicle of his promise. And even despite their failure, God has a place for them in the future. I think when you arrive, when you approach scripture by acknowledging just the plain sense, which is one of the key uh, points of a dispensationalist, we consistent literal interpretation, you arrive at these conclusions. You don't have to try to spiritualize anything. You can just say, well, God meant what he said. Right. And we ourselves are privileged to live in the best times so far, the church age. Even in the Garden of Eden, God was with them, but God wasn't in them. Mm-hmm. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling inside us, covered by his blood. There's no more danger of us being lost like Adam had. We've been saved. 
The Spirit of the Lord brings liberty and hope, forgiveness. And Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Meaning, the apostles were wondering when they prophesied these things, what is it? What is this? When Isaiah right. said, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. He, when? Who? What is all of this? It was revealed to them, Peter says, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You are living out the prophet's dreams and the angels are overawed by what has been done for you. Isn't that, isn't that radical? Isn't that awesome? Cool story, bro. It's Yeah, man, <laughs> it sure is. And so I ought to say here too, if you have not entered into that new covenant by placing your faith in Jesus and repenting of your sins, turning from your old ways and, and coming to God with your hands open, then you need to. You can. You can live in the grace of Almighty God that he sent his own son to die and win for you. And if you have, man, consider how blessed you are. Mm. That you didn't deserve this, but God gave it to you because he just loves you so much. That uh, he did bent world history to come get you. Huh. How amazing is yeah, that? Cool. So this was just an overview of the these ideas. Um, and again, to put us in frame for you, this series is all about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. How do they relate to each other? What are they? What's different now? What's the same now? And now that we've kind of given you the big picture, next time we're going to look at that Old Covenant in detail. What was the law? What was it for? What was it not for? Uh, and then we'll probably move on to the New Covenant, what that is and what's different, but what's the same? And uh, look in more detail about the future that God has for uh, the nation of Israel. How mm -hmm. is he going to bring that covenant to a conclusion? So... Any final words, Zach? No, man, this is all awesome. And like we said, guys, these are such important, you know, building blocks for understanding so much of scripture. So these are these are really, really cool things to talk about together. And uh, we're going to get into some really fun stuff about, you know, yeah, be, get going now a little bit more into the details of how God has worked in each of these dispensations. So it's fun yeah. stuff. And y'all, even if you've come from a different theological perspective, uh, I think you'll still be able to benefit from the things we talk about and hopefully yeah. give you some things to chew on and think about. Uh, you know, we don't hate covenant theology. You know, we just think that they're wrong and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, Y'all can sure. be wrong. Jesus still loves you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we will get into all that in more detail next time. So thanks for listening, guys. We will see you soon on the Ironworks Podcast. Thanks, guys. Oh.